Welcome to the Skies Were Under podcast, hosted by me, Rachel Wright. This podcast is created by and for parents of people with disabilities and the many practitioners who support us. It's just for all of us who are trying to get from one end of the week to the other whilst bridging the gap between the life we expected and the one we're actually living. Hi, I'm Rachel. I'm founder and director of Born at the Right Time. I'm a qualified nurse, the parent of three, and I've got an eldest son who loves swimming, pointless, and has complex disabilities. I wrote the memoir, The Skies I'm Under, and I'm thrilled you've joined us for another episode of The Skies We're Under podcast, which shares the stories of fellow parents, so we can all feel a little less alone and a little more understood. Sarah Clayton joins me on the podcast today. She's the CEO of Simple Stuff Works and the parent of four. Her eldest daughter is crafting, sewing, creating obsessed and lives with complex learning disability following a brain tumour age six and subsequent stroke. Today, Sarah and I have the great pleasure of interviewing the infinitely cooler Steph Nemo. She can be found on social media as Was This In The Plan?, And in this interview, she talks about the big loves in her life, her daughter and her husband, who both died within a year of each other, some very cool music, and meeting Dave Grohl. We start this conversation talking about names, as Steph wrote a great article in the BMJ asking practitioners to, please don't call me mum. I just want to give you a trigger warning that today in my conversation with Steph, and Sarah, we talk about bereavement, we talk about loss, and even get down to the nitty gritty and the practicalities of planning a funeral for your child and for your husband. Hello, Sarah and Steph. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi there. Steph, well, Sarah and I have known each other for a long time. I think actually, Steph, Sarah and I have talked about you before, uh, years ago. We talked about you. Yes. And I had stalked you, you know, socially acceptable sort of, you know, social media (laughs) type observation stuff. Yeah. And I realised that we both had the same soapbox a few years ago. So I started Don't Call Me Mum on my website, what was it, 2016. And then you did that great article in 2019 in the BMJ. And I'm like, this woman's one of mine. (laughs) (laughs) One of the tribe. One of the tribe. So do you want to tell us, Steph, what brought you to that article a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, around conversations? I mean, that was on the back of stuff I'd even written in my book, Was This in the Plan? And I'd written in my blog years before because, like probably most people listening to this podcast, I was the mother of a very disabled little girl. Daisy, who was born very prematurely in 2004, and not long after she was diagnosed with a really rare genetic disease, and we were told she was life-limited. And she was medically complex, so there was a lot going on. I had to give up my job. You know, it was very clear I was going to have to give up my job. But I remember this moment, we were in Great Ormond Street, Mm. and she'd come out of intensive care. She wasn't even a year old, and she'd had some tests on her vision, Um, which we knew was probably not good news. And I remember this SHO chasing me down the corridor, bearing in mind I had three other children, so I had four kids. He was chasing me down the corridor going, Mum, Mum. And this was about, yeah, 2005. I just turned around and looked at him and just went, I'm like, Mum. I said, Jeez, have I inherited yet another child, you know? 
honestly, <laughs> it just felt so. Oh, I have enough people to parent in this yeah. world. Oh, I, you know, the, he was young, inexperienced, <laughs> and on top of everything, I was exhausted. You know, I'd had two months in NICU, literally a few weeks at yeah. home, and then yeah. months yeah. back in PICU, and and it was just like, oh, it was the final straw. It was actually, it was 2008, I started writing the blog. Yeah, yeah. And it was about, for me, Don't Call Me Mum isn't just about, because I, what I found, I started putting it out and saying, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about being called mum? Because particularly when you're really long-term in hospital, there, there's no excuse. If your mm-hmm. child's got a complex condition, you're in and out, they get to know you. There is no excuse to at least ask you yeah people people see you all the time exactly mm. exactly because I mean I'd put it out on Twitter and people say I haven't got time I haven't got time I'm like, yeah I think there's just no excuse to just ask you wouldn't mm. a, an adult you wouldn't do you know although actually interesting had yeah. quite an interesting experience yeah, in A&E yeah, yeah. a couple of weeks ago with my 20 year old son but anyway that's another story who is literally referred to as bed number four you know, it was, that's how awful it was. Um, but we've had that one. Um, yeah. I felt, yeah, I felt with the... Um, so it's either the bed, the relationship. Mm. No, it was. I mean, I think it was just, I mean, we were in literally, I mean, yes, let's not even begin about the state of the NHS at the moment and the poor staff. And yeah, I get it then. Yeah, I think there's no excuse. But I started asking other parents and a lot of them said, do you know what, I've never thought of it, it really irritates me actually. But then I also found some who, for them, that was a badge of honour. To be a mum was the most important thing. And I had to sort of frame it because Mm, it's not about don't call me mum. It's about humanising the dialogue. It's about humanising the conversation. Mm -hmm. Because if you distill someone down to just just mum and as we know when you are caring for a child who's so medically complex you live with our child 24 7 you know more than anyone else about the little nuances the baselines everything Mm -hmm. and I used to say hands up I'm not a doctor but I do know a lot about Daisy and therefore I deserve a seat at the table and I deserve to be asked what I would like to be called and you know Mm. actually for everyone, I would like to be called Steph, please, you know, and I think that's the thing that's always irritated me hugely is just give people the the courtesy of asking them, what should I call you? What, what would you prefer to be called? Don't ever assume, because also might not be the man, might be the man or whatever, you know, might be the carer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of variations. Mm-hmm. And then actually, as Daisy got older, it irritated me even more because people would talk over her. It's like, yeah, just because she's got learning disabilities doesn't mean she can't understand everything. Mm-hmm. Her receptive skills are brilliant and she understands everything you say. So you need to be talking to her as well. You know, yeah. so for yeah. me, it becomes a bigger thing. And it's something that I've been writing about and doing a lot of work around, which is about this whole humanizing the interaction. And so don't call me mum is kind of crystallizing it right down. Mm-hmm. And often when I speak and I say to clinicians, yeah. nurses, allied yeah. health professionals, one thing I can say to you when you leave this room, one change you could make is don't call me mum, ask someone what they would want to be called because we bring so much experience Mm -hmm. it's a very just a very simple change and yes you might not forget it but just ask you know just oh and the 
the notes. I mean, yeah. do they ever yeah. read the notes? Yeah. Copious notes. Mm. Just have mm. to look at the front page, you know. And, um, yeah, <laughs> Steph likes to be called Steph. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's the lovely Hello My Name Is badges that I really do appreciate and I love. Mm -hmm. And you almost want to have another badge that says underneath, and you are. Totally. You know, like kind of because the Hello My Name Is. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's what we need. I was going to say, if you ask the question and somebody prefers to be called mum, that's great. Just say, just call me mum. It's the option. Yeah, and it's respectful. Yeah. Some of the research has said that 50%, other pieces of research have said 80% would rather be called by their name. But it boils down to exactly what you're saying, Steph. It's that humanising. So your book, Was This in the Plan, says Mm -hmm. it, it really does that human story for me. It really does that kind of you know, we can list off diagnoses, can't we? Mm -hmm. We can list off, we can distill our lives into, you know, milestones or, you know, inch stones or whatever big stories. What I was really intrigued when I was reading your book, you're so way cooler than me and Sarah. We've discussed this and the cool level is amplified. (laughs) Sarah doesn't even cross the bridge. My book, The Skies of Munda, comes from the Mumford and Sons song, whereas the start of your book opens with a Foo Fighters quote can you remember what the Foo Fighters quote is oh. I'm going to tell you I'm going to tell you don't worry don't worry so the Foo Fighters quote that you have at the start of your book it's times like these you learn to live again it's times like these you give and give again it's times like these you learn to love again it's times like these and time again I mean it's the start of the book but for me it just sums up so much of the mm. essence of you you clearly have had some deep loves in your life and continue to um Mm -hmm. what made you start there at the start of your book well I mean the whole Foo Fighters thing the whole family story because my husband is a huge Foo Fighters fan we liked Nirvana at the very beginning she's my age you know, the first I time round. <laughs> I see young kids with that, you know, the t-shirt on. And I remember when they were alive. You know, he was alive. You don't deserve listening. Exactly. You should know where they came from. Um, and then, you know, the early because we we are. I mean, I still continue to be a huge radio lover. And you know, you'd hear late night radio. They'd be playing this. Um, yeah, there's this new band, and it's Dave Grohl from Nirvana, and he plays all the instruments, and it's called Foo Fighters, and it grew. And grew and in fact Andy went to the first ever Foo Fighters gig in the UK that was at King's College and it was a warm-up for Reading cool long long time ago yeah see just other other level cool oh <laughs> she's friends with Joe Wiley that that kind of cool is he more cool <laughs> yeah <laughs> music is huge in my life it was huge in my husband's life and then Daisy turned oh she wasn't even 10 and he became really, really ill. And this is, you know, it's going back to carers, looking after ourselves. You know, he turned 50 the year before, getting tired. And we had four kids. You know, all my kids are neurodivergent in some shape or form. And we had Daisy, who's by then on 24-7 TPN, had epilepsy, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Anyway, he became really ill, lost a huge amount of weight really quickly and something was clearly not right he was waiting to have a scope and the doctor thought I think it might be ulcerative colitis or something oh bloody hell you know another chronic thing mm. we're gonna have to deal with uh, it turns out he had stage four bowel cancer and mm. it was everywhere and he was given a year 
Oh, wait, we're not even. Yeah, he had a year. Yeah. But the one thing, we had tickets. We go to Glastonbury. I love Glastonbury. And the one, we knew we were going to Glastonbury, and that was his focus. Got to try and be stable and well enough to get to Glastonbury. Foo Fighters are headlining. Dream come true. And I just kind of put it out there and said, look, is there any way that my husband is living on borrowed time? Our lives are so topsy-turvy anyway. We'd love to meet Dave Grohl. And that's mm-hmm. what has how I met Joe. Because she got in touch and we just hit it. Because, of course, she's got a sister. Mm. <laughs> she's got a sister with a rage and a disease. So we kind of yeah, bonded yeah. over that anyway, over, like, life growing up with disability. And... I mean, cut long story short, there's this whole thing about Dave Grohl breaking his leg, which was a bit inconvenient as well. But we eventually, when he kind of did the, he came back and he was in the throne with his broken leg and everything, we got to meet him. And he was amazing. And it was just lovely. And then, you know, Andy died literally just a couple of months afterwards. So that was, yeah. And those lyrics of that song are, yeah, Mm. they just, I mean, Mm. I'm all about the lyrics anyway the banner on my blog is don't think twice it's all right it's a bob dylan so i love bob dylan and you know i just love that don't think twice it's all right if you ever think mm. about it if you ever think it mm. you do anything so yeah i'm a lyrics i'm a words smith yeah. you certainly are so i got permission from the foo fighters to use that quote amazing and um that was the start that kind of sets the scene for the book really yeah absolutely does set the scene and it's like was this in the plan very clearly has, like I said, this passion and this love that beats out of it. The music, the people, the stories, the anecdotes. Given there is this relationship between love and vulnerability and the potential for hurt, <laughs> the potential mm. and in some mm-hmm. people's lives, lots. Do you have a new plan? <laughs> Do you have a new plan when it comes to how you love and how you live or your relationship with vulnerability, given what you've experienced so far? So what I experienced, particularly with Daisy and with Andy, was that I could not allow myself to be vulnerable. And I think when I speak to other people who are you know, full-on carers, you can't allow yourself to fall apart. So many people need you. You have to hold it. Mm. You know, the bottom line is Andy died and a year later, Daisy died. So I experienced two huge, huge losses and was, you know, widowed, parent of three, bereaved mother, you know, you name it. It was yeah. just horrific. And I had spent years and years being hypervigilant. You live on the edge, constantly mm. waiting for what's, what's next, what's next, what's next. And I learned, because all the conversations I was having about Daisy, about Andy, you know, just getting things, you know, for my kids, one of my kids, I was trying to get him into a special school. I had to advocate for them. I had this role to play and I couldn't afford to break down and fall apart. So you bring all the shutters down and I found I was very good at being focused, let's sort this, business-like, professional. And then... Don't recognise that at all, do you, Sarah? We're both nodding away. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Give me a list of tasks. Thank you very much. Give me a job. I could do a job. Who, who's got the time for emotions? Totally. The adrenaline carries you through. It's like, right, okay, bring it on. You know, you have something goes wrong, something's not... Right, okay, let me sort it out. And you do... So what you're saying there is, like, you're a widow... You know, you've lost uh-huh. a child, but you're still parenting three other children. 
Like there isn't this sort of, okay, well, this is where I climb into a hole and look after myself. Exactly. Like you're running a household on your own. You've got two people, three people, as well as yourself, that you're trying to bring yeah. through this enormity of grief. I mean, for all the platitudes of self-care, like what, what, what on earth do you do? Yeah, there was no time. I, you know, I felt, and this was the thing I used to bang on about all the time with sort of the social worker um, when Daisy was alive, was this isn't just about Daisy. This is a family of six. There are four children. They have one shot at childhood too. Mm. And I was really aware that I had to get it right with the grieving, yeah. with the yeah. how I responded after Andy died and Daisy died was going to teach them, you know, how they could tune into a message, how they could respond. But I had to be there for them. So people ask me, how did you do it? How did you do it? It's like, well, you know, thank God I did have the children because I think if I didn't have the children, would I even be here? I don't know. There were some dark times, but I had to get up. I had to put one foot in front of the other and I had to just mm. get it right for them. I mean, when Andy died, it was the 14th of December, the following week it was Daisy's birthday you know when you travel with a learning disability birthday and Christmas biggest deal of the year 22nd of December you got it all rolled into it had to do the birthday then Christmas for the kids you know couldn't just cancel Christmas then there's a funeral to plan when Andy died uh, when Daisy died it was after New Year you know again yeah. and then I had my son's birthday literally two weeks after Daisy died. You know? oh and so goodness. it goes, I mean, this time of year is horrific. I mean, because it's like three months of just bang, 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 constant. I mean, it's just, this is all compressed, you know, but you put one foot in front of the other and you keep going. But then there was a point, and I remember it vividly. I found myself, because I'd lived in this state of busyness and constant yeah. needing to do stuff. Mm. And it was almost yeah. like the children were starting to become settled. They were starting to find their own way. School was okay. You know, they sort of engaged with therapy and it was going really well. And boom, it was like, okay, it's my time. But I didn't realise that I had a very minor car accident. I was rushing down to go and speak at a conference because I was just wanted to be busy. I just filled my time so I didn't have to think. Because, you know, when you, you're caring, you're busy, busy, busy anyway. And I ended up just in A&E and, and I had a cut in my head and everything hit. It brought back so much and, you know, and yeah. PTSD. And it's at that point I started therapy. But it was a couple of years after Daisy died. I needed... Sometimes with grief, I think some people feel, oh, I need to go to therapy. You don't know when it's going to hit. And I needed everything else to be in place. I needed to know my kids were safe. I need to know financially we were okay. We weren't going to lose the house because, you know, we've been living off benefits. And then I could allow myself to just not quite fall apart, but, you know, just deal with it. Deal with it confront it and pick it yes feel and you never do but at least I was able to just go there and allow myself to go to that space but it took a long while to just be able to do it and I think that's something that we learn from caring and from our full-on lives that you have to I don't know how many of us um, have our big cries in the shower or when we're out where no one listens or no one can see us, you know? You have to be strong in front of everyone else. So I tended to hide it all. And then it was just allowing myself permission. Yeah. I think it's so interesting you said I had to get it right for the kids from a grief point of view. Yeah. And talking to you, it sounds like getting it right is not like hiding it all. Do you know what I mean? It's getting it right is modelling how do I process this 
in a way that enables you to process it in whatever suits you. And especially, you know, presumably with the neurodivergence and stuff, that's all going to look different for people and letting people kind of express that level of loss and how that manifests itself. You talk about it. So your second book, Goodbye Daisy, kind of taps into that sort of how do we deal with grief and loss. Tell me about how that book came about. It really struck me when Andy died. When Andy was diagnosed with cancer, I knew that I needed to get it right. Because in many ways, when Andy was diagnosed with cancer, um, it sounds terrible, but my marriage ended in many ways because I then became Andy's carer as well. And it changes the dynamic and cancer was our lives. And his focus was cancer. And there's this like these onion rings of just the person in the middle. But <laughs> Daisy too. And again, I wanted to model and ensure that I got it right for the kids. So I, I spoke to lots of people about how to talk to the kids and how to particularly talk to Daisy and with the boys who are on the autistic spectrum and they present very differently Theo is more what we we used to call Asperger's Jules is more PDA and we subsequently discovered Xanthi is ADHD and dyspraxia but you know so each of them very very different but I knew with these sort of the autistic traits things were black and white so we couldn't use euphemism you know so we were really direct and we didn't give any false hope I think that was really crucial and that's something I think I learned from when my dad had cancer we were almost we didn't even realize he was going to die until a few days before because we were given a lot of false hope you know and our family likes black and white and then I phoned the hospital I said Daisy you know she understands so much and they said you know, we'd always been very open as a family. We always shared, you know, through the blog, our journey. So we chose to therefore share that Andy had cancer. And we didn't use, again, any euphemism with Daisy. And when Andy was really deteriorating, he didn't hide from the kids. And also, it was really important for Daisy to see that he was deteriorating, that he was poorly. And we talked about sometimes people can be poorly and the doctors can't make them better. But so the book came out of a lot of that experience of explaining to a child with a learning disability. She stayed at the hospice when Andy died. And when I went to go and tell her, she knew straight away what I was coming to tell her. Because in many ways, she had seen his demise. And I think I wanted to get that across to people that just because you've got a learning disability, even PMLD, there is an understanding that someone's not here anymore. And that was very evident with her school friends too. And the school were brilliant at helping the kids with social stories. So I wanted to capture that and talking about Daisy and why didn't she come and say goodbye. So that was the whole sort of rationale with the book. So when Andy died, sort of explaining to Daisy, and then when Daisy died, explained to her friends and helping children with a social story to talk about their feelings of, well, where's my friend? Why didn't they say goodbye? And helping the parents and the professionals, because it's something I think we skirt around a lot, but we don't really openly talk about. I mean, you know, particularly when a child has got a disability or some level of complex needs, they are more likely to experience the death of a friend. Statistically, children in specialist schools, they more of them die, but we're not very good at, you know, recognising that children die. And we have to accept that sometimes medical science cannot fix and children die. But how we then 
manage that and communicate and help people talk about it. So the children aren't scared. Is that going to be me? Am I next? But also can focus on the memories and also just try and find ways of expressing their grief. So that was the rationale behind the book because I felt there was nothing there that helped children with learning disabilities and just supporting parents and professionals. So it's a kind of, you know, it's got three audiences. It's a social story. You know, it's what I learned as a parent and then it's advice and guidance for professionals as well. So that's where that one came from. (laughs) We'd been in it and I absolutely love Goodbye Daisy and I bought copies for a local school. We have a fabulous local school. Uh, There's a lot of kids with very complex disability there. I 100% agree with you that we're just not prepared for those conversations around death and dying with children. And I remember with B that obviously we're in a situation with childhood cancer where some of her friends that she was going through treatment with died. There was a young man who was just fabulous with B. I looked back and I thought he was older. Uh, he was eight. In that world, you lose the plot, don't you, in terms of, you know, and your child's six, so they're an old child at eight years old. And I didn't tell B when he relapsed and died. And I didn't tell B because I thought I was protecting her. You know, I just thought that that was the right thing to do. And, you know, obviously she found out in a clinic, you know, because he wasn't there and she'd asked somebody. So she found out in an awful, it was awful. And she was so angry with me. And she said to me, he was my friend. And so that prompted from then on, it was like, right, okay. And she's attended funerals of children and she's appreciated it sounds ridiculous at seven eight nine years old she has appreciated the ritual of that this is how we say goodbye and that she's involved in that ritual even though she is a child and even though she has a learning disability she's appreciated that but god it doesn't make it easy does it you know but it's that thing like you've talked about before there Steph of wanting to get it right and even though it hurts as a parent, it's that prioritisation. Yes, it will hurt. Yes, I will deal with it. But at the moment, I need to do these things. So yeah, hard, hard stuff. I get a lot of messages asking about, you know, thoughts on should my daughter go to their friend's funeral? You know, those sort of things. And I always say, I think you need to take the steer from the child. And again, I think the ritual is is really important it's that kind of you know accompanying someone on their final journey and that feeling of closure but allowing time so when Daisy died because we knew she was going to die because we were under palliative care and you know I'd obviously you go to a lot of funerals but you have a lot of time to think about things you know what's available you know when Daisy died she died in intensive care we couldn't even anticipate how she was going to die you know I wanted her to be at home that was not possible but then I knew about the cold mattresses because I'm just that sort of person I store everything in my brain so I asked the hospice nurse you know could we have a cold mattress at home and we brought Daisy home from intensive care and we tapped her in and you know I felt I reclaimed her as a child she was no longer a patient and she looked so peaceful and she was long it was like so tall because she'd been in so much pain and crunched up in a wheelchair and it was really beautiful to see she looked so relaxed and for the kids they just wandered in and out of the room and it really gave them a lot of comfort we then took her to the hospice to the cold room I checked I asked the kids again I was not going to impose what I thought was the right thing or what I wanted it was this was a group decision and they all agreed Daisy loved the hospice. She loved, that was her sleepover place. So we took her there 
And, you know, we dressed her in her princess dress. We put flowers on her. And then my daughter put makeup on her and painted her nails. And she said to me, Xanthi, that she said, this is so healing. I'm really just enjoying spending these last days with Daisy and being part of that process of getting her ready to say goodbye. And then my big dilemma was oh, the funeral. You know, it's like where, what, and how? Oh God, you know, real. Because I mean, it was only a year before I'd organised a funeral for my husband, and it was half term the following week. I contacted the school because I knew, you know, the kids would be off, and I said, "Can we bring Daisy back? Can we have a funeral at the school?" And they said yes, because they were brilliant. And so we had her funeral. We brought the coffin into school, and it was because she loved school. You said the hospice, school, and home. So you know, I felt that. I'd managed to do all those things so we brought her pink coffin in and I said to all her friends and the teachers I said if kids want to come they come you know please and we had singing hands this and one of the little girls said she's just going to Daisy's goodbye party you know? <laughs> that's like elite performers that's like as far as funerals go that's like getting Elton John in isn't it <laughs> She was their biggest fan. She wanted to work for them and hand out stickers when she was going out and out to all the good children, not the bad children. They were going to be in trouble with Daisy. And we had some of her classmates made decorations. Oh, it was just beautiful. And I think when I talk about this, I want to get across. There's no right or wrong way that it's your way. And for us, it felt right. We kept saying Daisy would have loved it. Being in school, all her mates, their centre of attention. Mm. She'd have absolutely loved it. And then we went the next day to the creme, just me and the three kids. No first, first slot in the morning, and that's where we just had a private. We just said goodbye to her that way. That was really important, not just for my children, but all the friends from school to be able to say goodbye. And also, I was really, really aware of the people whose lives, lives have been intertwined with ours. You know, the one-to-ones in school, the teaching assistants, the learning support assistants who had been, who'd known Daisy years and had seen her demise, the carers that came to the house, the nurses, all of those people, you know, their lives were suddenly, well, Daisy's not here anymore, you know, so I needed to give them an opportunity to say their goodbyes as well. So, yeah, I felt, you know, it was a really important part of the process and I think people don't know what to do that's why I share, because it is about what you feel like. There is no, nobody's going to judge you. This is about your child. Don't rush it or your loved one. And then, you know, do what you feel you want to do. Yeah. And I was going to say, again, it's that my reflection on this conversation all the way through. Once again, you're thinking of other people again, you know, and I think and Rachel and I and Lucy have talked about the courage that it takes to really, you know, to love and to kind of really put yourself out there. And I think like everything that you're describing, you can probably hear me snuffling away. This is, I can't turn the bloody microphone off because, but I am snorting and like a little truffling pig in the background. But just that courage, that courage that you're talking about and that courage that we see lived out every day in the families families like ours that's underestimated and brings you right back, doesn't it, to that don't call me mum. You know, like this is such a high level of just passion and commitment. I, yeah. I, yeah, I think it's... Yeah, extreme love. Yes. Yeah. It's the extreme parenting. Yes. When I spoke at Daisy's funeral as well, I said, you know, it's that whole it takes a village 
you know, I mean, we know everything's a battle. We're always having to use combative language. I used to resent the amount of time I spent doing admin and, you know, fighting the system, which took me away from just being Daisy's mum. But there were some really, really good people who just went above and beyond, didn't matter if there was job description, friends, you know, and we all know that story. You have some people that stay the course with friends and some that disappear. And then you have the professionals that just get it and just people. And it really does take a village. And these, our children create this ripple effect you know, that's so much wider. And I did feel that I was sharing Daisy with so many people. Everyone had their little story. I'd be out with Daisy sometimes and someone would come out and go, hi, Daisy, and they'd chat away. And I'd go, you can introduce me, Daisy, who is this person? And it would be some random person, yes, that had come across her. And you're like... You're like, who are you? Yes, because our kids make <laughs> such an impact. And, you know, it would be something like, yes, we did a, a show, a fairy show at the school, and she was so excited. Or, you know, oh, I was an agency nurse one night, and she was so hilarious. And, you know, it's like, yeah, okay. You know? But we forget that we do, in some ways, we have to share our kids. You know? <laughs> this, Yeah, this whole world. Share them or do it all yourself, isn't it? Exactly. I learned that very, very early on that yes, that I couldn't do it all myself. That was a really early first lesson. Yeah. A hard one. I think it's so interesting the sort of yeah, I've been around and sort of my other children have been like, Who is that? When you know we're approaching, mm-hmm. I was like, mm-hmm. I have no idea. But no. clearly someone who knows your brother. Yes. I think it's so interesting you saying that you had those I think we have hard conversations at the last minute sometimes like we wait until it has to be done you know and whether that's to do with our current version of parenting which is different to the 90s and 80s and the 40s and the 30s but our current form of version of parenting and being a good parent is protecting which means stopping them from feeling you know like avoiding the bad and the trauma. Whereas the parenting, the beautiful parenting that you have shown in how you allowed Daisy to die well as well as live well came about from having hard conversations. And actually, especially young people are more resilient than we realise and are more more in tune. Like the feelings are there whether we admit to them or not. So the question isn't, can I protect them from feeling this? The question is, am I going to hold space for those feelings or are we going to pretend they're not there? Born at the Right Time, we're passionate about improving the lives of people with complex disabilities, whether it's through supporting their family, CPD certified training for practitioners or influencing policymakers and providers to turn rhetoric into reality. You can find out more about our work, whether it's book on a parent workshop, attend a live podcast event, or check out our range of practitioner training in communication, collaboration and personalised care by visiting our website, www.bornattherighttime.com. Your third book, Mm. the title of anything for my child Presumably your motivation comes from all the stuff that you've been saying, these hard conversations, knowing that they don't go anywhere, that we need to have them, that we're so dependent on so many different people. And sometimes it can really go wrong. So anything with my child, the actual title came from 
again, you know, I spend my time talking to lots of parents and lots of people just generally. And I remember chatting to a professional that I'd met in Gosh, and we used to just have coffee occasionally together and chat. And he said, yeah, he said, I, I get a lot of parents coming to me saying, I'll do anything for my child. But what does that mean? And, and, and I thought, you're right. What does that mean? Because your idea of anything for your child is different maybe to mine, is different to someone else's. And it's all shaped by so many experiences and values and value systems. And for me, anything for my child was to make the worst decision, that, you know, the decision that a parent should never have to make, which was to say to the intensivist, it's time to let her go, you can remove ventilation. You know, basically allow my child to die. That for me... I knew the times were, and I knew that because I'd been able to have those difficult conversations. And I identify them as these tipping points, you know, sort of the Malcolm Gladwell thing, that there are things in our whole journey, there are points and conversations that can make or break a whole relationship and a relationship between a clinical team and the parent carers or carers. And a throwaway comment to them, which means nothing, to the healthcare professionals, to as we know, we hang on every single word, can just be make all that difference. But also a positive comment. So I was so lucky that in the early days, Daisy's neonatologist, you know, it depends who's the attending consultant on the day your child's born, it happened to be this wonderful woman called Ruth, very similar age to me, our kids, you know, ended up actually, my daughter went to the school that her daughter had been to, you know, she lived locally. And in another world, I always felt that she would have been one of the mums I knew in my circle of mum friend. And she just got it right. She said, I mean, A, she said, is it okay if I call you Steph? I thought, well, you know, that was only in the first few weeks of Daisy's life. So that was like, Wow. And that for me, which is why then everything else was like, I ain't got me Steph, you know, why are you calling me mum? And, you know, what she was wanted to chat to me about Daisy and what she thought was going on. And I remember we sat there and she made me a cup of coffee. And then she said, you know, I don't know what's going on with Daisy. I don't know. And that was really empowering. And I found that subsequently. And I've, when I interviewed a lot of parents in my book, a lot of them said, actually hearing what was possible, what they didn't know really helped. But then she said to me, but let's work together and we will find out. So she set the scene. This is how the relationship's going to be. I don't have all the answers. I know people. I'm going to try and piece it all together. Whereas then, you know, I had other points in time where, you know, you would get these just throwaway comments and yeah, people would talk over your head or they wouldn't listen or, you know, the time that I, there'd be an MDT for my child and I'd be sat outside the room. It's like, hang on, I'm the only one here that actually knows, you know, 24-7 all her nuances and I'm sitting outside here and why? Why? So that's where sort of anything from my job because those things then make mm. or break that relationship and sometimes those disputes and those irritations can become full-blown conflict and then there can be complete disagreement for what I think is the right thing for my child versus the clinician. 
Is there anything other than what I said, was there anything that you haven't said yet that you learned from that research about what practitioners can do, what parents can do within really hard, you know, situations in order to ensure that those relationships don't break down, especially like you say, that we can be so hypervigilant, we can be so sort of armoured up and ready to, and partly because of where we started this conversation, talking about, I'm going to stay busy, I'm going to stay doing these things because I'm not Mm -hmm. dealing with emotions. And then that can perpetuate the lack of, connection because we're right well you've got to do this and if you don't do that right then you're doing it wrong and that's the way it is Mm -hmm. and you know what I mean so what have you learned so it's interesting you said about the parents because I think both sides as it were have a role to play that we also have to understand and you Mm -hmm. know I get really upset when you see the big cases and you know the reporting the headlines and it's them and us And the clinicians, the doctors, the nurses, you know, they are dehumanized themselves. And ultimately, we are all human beings. Certainly, people don't go into the NHS for the money, you know. They go in because they care. (laughs) And particularly nurses get to develop really close relationships with families that are in long-term or in and out. The doctors, again, they get to know the families. So the other piece I often say is that taking off the metaphorical white coat and thinking, how would I feel? Just allow yourself to feel a little bit if this was me. Because I think over the years, traditionally, health professionals have protected themselves through that kind of metaphorical, invisible white coat but you kind of need to step up. But at the same time, we as parents need to reflect these are humans and they go home, they have families, they have feelings. Mm -hmm. It's again, it's meeting in the middle and collaborating together. You know, when breast becomes air, it's a great example of when a clinician then becomes a patient or the hello, my name is, that came from, she became a patient and how that felt and it really does change and so it's how can we bring that in and from both sides I was at the RCPCH conference earlier this year and I talked about this 24-hour life and that understanding that they see touch points in our lives but you kind of need to see that full picture and I feel there's a gap missing around sort of advocacy around someone that can just be beside the parents to just translate a bit and then that you did now off you go I think you've got it you know and just to ease them in I think that that when I think of our the very beginning of our journey I think for me it was around the communication skills of her oncologist and he was with us like from night one like all the way through so we didn't we weren't in need of an advocate because his communication skills covered that role you know whereas and I genuinely really briefly genuinely there was somebody involved in her care And I remember being told, no, he won't see you. This was before a major brain surgery. No, he won't see you before. And I was like, but I need to see him. I need to talk to him about what's going to happen. And a nurse said to me, look, he's really brilliant with his hands and not so good on the communication front. And you don't need a relationship with him. Yeah, she just said, she said, he's brilliant. She was like, he is brilliant with his hands. (laughs) You don't need a relationship with him. And I was like, you don't need him in your life, actually. You need his skills from his neck down. (laughs) Oh, okay. You know, and this is like in day five of the whole bloody cancer journey. So it was like, okay. But it was true because I did meet him afterwards and he kind of dropped the odd bombshell into that conversation. And this same nurse stood and held my hand really tightly and was just like, 
wait for him to go, you know? And then as soon as he's gone, <laughs> she was like, right, and went through everything. <gasps> exactly. But he was brilliant with but his see, hands. The person was that nurse. Uh, totally. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Born at the Right Time is a proud partner of Simple Stuff Works. Together, we champion the protection of people's bodies through engaging and enjoyable training, looking at 24-hour postural care and specifically the importance of lying support. Whether you're a novice wanting a short three-hour online course taking you through the basics, a specialist practitioner needing comprehensive training or anything in between, we have a range of CPD-certified courses just for you. Find out more at www.bornattherighttime.com where we give you the language, skills and confidence to protect people through excellence in 24-hour postural care. Right, rapid fire. Okay, so we've got some questions. Steph, what is your favourite subject at school? Biology, bizarrely, because I didn't do it at uni. You're a superhero. Mm -hmm. What is your chosen superpower? It's Elastic Girl from The Incredibles. Was it Elastic Woman? You know the man? <laughs> the Incredibles. It's like grabbing the child and doing this and cooking. It's me. Yeah, that's my superpower. Being a parachute. Being the parachute when you jump out the airplane. Love it. Yeah, exactly. Doing it all. What's an ordinary moment that brings you joy? Now, this is really important to me because it's something I say to a lot of people. The little things are the big things. It's not about, particularly when you've got a child's life limited, it's not about bucket lists or anything. It's about the things that you take for granted that once they're taken away, you really miss. The ordinary moment for me is literally sitting on the sofa, you know, watching some TV with my partner and my dog and the fire on, a nice glass of wine. Yeah. Because I had years of my life when I sat looking at magnolia walls and horrible plastic chairs and plastic coated mattresses. And all I ever wanted to do was just sit on the sofa and watch a bit telly and then with the family or just having my kids around the table. So if you were to win a TV reality show, which one would it be? The one where, actually years and years ago, you go and live on an island. Oh, I'd love that, you know, and just, yeah. Oh, like Bear Grylls type kind of thing. Yeah, I wouldn't mind that. Ben yeah. Vogel, he did that. Vogel, yes. yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay, okay. What's the last photo you took? First thing this morning, I looked out the window and the sun was so beautiful and the ground was frosty because I'm down in Dorset in the moment and the trees were so beautiful and golden and I took a picture and it just looked glorious. Beautiful. Okay, what's happening in your life which most excites you right now? There is never a dull moment. I think I have moved out of what was our family home. I've kept the fact it's all very complicated. I've done this, but I've moved to be closer to Callum. And it's the first time in my entire life I've lived on my own because I'm around the corner from him. He already has a little boy and I decided I wanted to just have a bit of space. I've brought up kids. So it's lovely, but it also means for the first time ever, this is my place. It's exciting, but daunting. I'm choosing kitchens and things, and you know, and it's my kitchen, Ooh. my flats, but taps and knobs, yeah, all of that, flooring and yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, so um, that's very exciting. Steph, it has been so so good talking to you. You can find all things Steph Nemo at yeah, it's just stephnemo.com. 
the new book comes out next year it's been delayed it's so frustrating because i want to be able to point people at it but thanks to covid and brexit and everything it's next year so when we publish the podcast we'll have all this steph's details the website her first book this wasn't the plan goodbye daisy the child book and anything for my child where to get all those things and you can read loads of steph's blogs sort of keep an eye on all that she's doing Steph, thank you so much for giving up your time it has been wonderful talking to you thank you sarah thank you Steph. for joining thank us you, as well. oh thank you thank you steph i'm going to take my snotty tissue away <laughs> I'm, gonna go lie down. I'm gonna go and take the dog out for a walk oh it's just so powerful <laughs> you. it is it's just wonderful yes do it enjoy yeah. the dog and enjoy the winner yes. all right thank you okay cheers bye the Wonder podcast is a born at the right time production supported by the expert studio assistants of podshop thanks to our wonderful guests for sharing their stories and very precious time and special thanks to the generosity of listeners whose donations have helped make this podcast we would love it if you could like follow and review the podcast wherever you listen as part of season two we have some great live events including the really ropey idea of sarah lucy and i being your agony aunts Email your stories, comments and questions either to tswupodcast at gmail.com to join in or follow us on Instagram at born at right time. We love you joining us for the ride as we hurtle along this off-piste version of parenting. It's so much better when we do it together. Whatever skies we're under. <laughs>